Hello, and welcome to a special edition episode of Thinking on Thinking. As we get ready to start our fourth season in two weeks, we're playing a special episode from the archives. This was an episode when Divya was struggling with how to think about designing spaces and comes from our second season when we weren't quite as adept at podcasting as we like to believe we are now. We hope you enjoy it and looking forward to seeing you with season four in two weeks. Hi, I'm Karen. Hi, I'm Divya and welcome to the 16th episode of Thinking on Thinking. Today we dive deep into a singular problem statement. I generally have had a lot of resistance towards designing spaces, especially the spaces that I live in. And our conversation went into how I can change that mental model, what would be required for that, and how I can think about spaces. It was a very action-oriented conversation, but not action in terms of what you are doing, but how you are changing thinking about what you are doing. It was a really fun conversation for both of us, something quite different from what we have done till now. And I hope you enjoy it. So as I think about like our lives and, and kind of the space that, that we have now, uh, we like Gaurav and I like to hang out after dinner. Um, we like to hang out in the morning before he goes to work. He likes to practice flute. Uh, I like to work and all of those like four activities need to ideally happen in this space, like in our living like dining space. Um, and, you know, because I think some of those activities are not as well supported and certain activities are more easily supported, we default to certain activities, right? So we end up watching TV after work, after dinner because it's easy. Um, Gorb doesn't practice flute huh. that much because it's kind of difficult now, right? His flute used to be on the counter, but I put it away because it was just, there was so much stuff on the counter now, right? And he, since I put it away, he hasn't actually taken it out because it's not there to remind him. It's just, it's a little bit more work, right? Um, and in the mornings we kind of huh. end up standing around because there's not an obvious place for us to like, like either sit and be able to like chat with each other or stand and talk to each other. Like it just, the space... Again, because like because we have a marble countertop in the kitchen, we have to like put something on it before you put your plates down. And then because you have to put table mats out, you just end up kind of standing and eating <laughs> because it's just one thing leads to another. Yeah. Um, so, right. So that's how I kind of think about it. there's a different part, which I mean, you could kind of call it aesthetic, but I feel like it's it's just like, is the space meeting all the functional needs? And I feel like you have to it does take sort of some some. The reason why I don't think aesthetic is totally wrong because it does take some sort of that kind of thinking to be like, oh, what what are the needs even of the space? And then, you know, how does the space maybe match and fit to those? No, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like you did something very interesting there. You expanded the definition of functional because initially when you started saying your, uh, like, when you started your statement, I was like, yeah, but my space also meets my functional needs. Because it has everything that, like, everything is assigned to a function. We can do this here, we can do that here, we can do yeah. that here. But just the way you were describing, it became a little more um, behavioral in some sense. Like, so, what kind of behaviors would we like to cultivate? Yeah. And, like, that part probably I'm not thinking about. Yeah. And I think that's the part that I really uh, focus on when I think about spaces. Um, 
like that's where I think we got to a good enough space with the the place I live in in Megalore, where like yeah, people did kind of the, they they behaved in the way we wanted them to, frankly, right? Like people stopped walking into the kitchen when they would come into our house. They would kind of sit down. They felt flowed outside. Um, and as you said, like the outdoors is a beautiful part of the home. So it, it like it just the behaviors were nice, um, and it became kind of obvious where we would have coffee in the morning and like we would hang out. Hmm. This is very interesting. I haven't thought about it like that because it's almost like it's almost like you divided the experiential from the aesthetic and you're saying that like the functional and the aesthetic meet together somewhere in the middle and then something else gets added and that builds the experiential component of like whatever the space is it's actually this interesting idea that <laughs> um i think early early listeners of our podcast may remember uh but i'm working on a short story with one of my childhood friends um one of the, the ideas that we use in the story around how magic works is when something has happened in a space for a long time that it leaves echoes of that in that space um, so like if, you know, there was a large body of water or people like, you know, gathered every year for a fair or something always in that same space, that then there would be some like, like some of that, once the behavior happened there for a long time, there would be some, uh, uh, remnants of it going forward. Um, anyway, you just reminded me of it when you were when mentioning that, that, uh, there was this intersection. That also reminded me of like, as you were describing this, um, do you know about walk hay? Um, which like literally translates to breath of the walk. No. Oh, I do. Yes, yes, like, yes, yes. But go on. Uh, right. So like it almost sounds like that, right? Like the idea that you said spaces hold um, the experience. Walk hey is literally that. Like the walk holds the breath, like the breath of everything that has been made in yeah. it till now. And like it becomes more rich and complex yeah um so there's a food blogger who i really like uh named kenji lopez and uh he re recently wrote a book called the walk and so in the introduction he talks about this concept um but i forgot about it until you you mentioned it just now yeah you should follow him i love his hmm. he's always just like doing exciting things <laughs> eating exciting things he's in mexico right now he's just like eating the coolest stuff but i'm just like and he's just like seems like a really lovely guy um <laughs> Oh. Okay, so now, like, let's say um, my initial resistance towards the idea of making my space nicer, for the lack of a better term, um, is reduced. Like, I can feel less resistance towards it right now because it makes more sense to make something more experientially conducive than try to just check yeah, boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, um, that's how I think about it. But then, like, where I would go with that is, like, now, I don't have the right heuristics for how to solve for a space. Because I'm a visual designer, I can think about what looks nice and what doesn't look nice. Because I've done experience design, I can think about what would feel nice and what wouldn't feel nice. But I don't think I have enough of a framework to like sort of work it together. It's almost like it would need, like there is a recipe to make places feel nice or there's a way of understanding how to make spaces feel nice and I don't have that like that's like that's the thought that comes to my mind right now 
Oh, so you feel like it's like like more of like an algorithmic problem, like where there are steps that you can follow. No, to, no, no. To mm, okay, no, I used the wrong word. I don't mean to use the word recipe. I would. I think what I was internally thinking about was how, if I want to make something Indian, I don't need a recipe for it. I understand how Indian cooking works, so I don't need the proportions. I don't need oh, this is how exactly I need to make this thing. Because I have an overall understanding of the okay. thing, right? Um, and I feel like there would be some an analogous thing. So, like, it's not a uh, like it's not an algorithmic problem; it's a heuristical one. But I feel like there would be some set of heuristics that I could build up. And right now, my table feels empty. I feel like when you say like an algorithmic versus heuristical problem. You have a frame of reference that I don't know if I share it completely. Hmm. Okay. In my mind, problems can be complex or they can be complicated. Um, an example of a complex problem would be, I don't know, making a, like, you know, 40-step dish or building a okay. car or building a rocket engine, right? Like, it's complicated in the sense that the first time you do it, it's going to be hard. But after that, you can, like, with a very reasonable reliability, you can just reproduce the same result. So the first time you have to figure it out, but then as you keep doing it again and again, you can, as long as you follow the steps correctly, you're going to get reasonably reliable results. Like, if you have figured out a recipe to make some really good dish, if you can recreate the recipe, you can recreate the dish. I would argue that's true of Might not almost be everything, right? Because, like, and the example I give you is, like, like I'm not very good at balancing. So whenever I'm learning a new sort of balancing posture or, like, trying to balance on top of a ball or something, the first, like, set of, of like, exercises I will struggle with completely. But then then it will just get huh. much better. So by the third set, like, I'll usually be able to, like like, balance completely well, right? But if you had 10 kids... By the tenth kid, you are no gonna no like you're not gonna be way better or find it way easier to raise a kid, and that is an example of a complex like complicated problem. There is no recipe for raising a kid. There are certain things that you should be doing right. There are certain things that you should be avoiding. Same is with making friends. You have made a lot of friends. I've made a lot of friends, but I can't give someone a step by step guide to reliably make friends. I have some ideas around how can I nudge the system into the direction, let's say, let's just keep going down the route of friendship. If I'm meeting someone and I'm interested in them, I have certain things that I know, oh, if I do this, it makes more likely that we're gonna be friends. And if I do that, it makes it less likely that we're gonna be friends. But it, nothing ensures, like if I have a good recipe, I can be 95% sure that I'm going to turn a good dish. And with like friendship, the best case I'm hoping for is like 55%. Same is true for like building companies. You could have built a company before and you will have better systems for thinking about things. But I, at least like in my experience, complicated problems, you feel more confidence about them because you know what questions to ask. But you don't really know the answers. The answers are very subjective. But it's interesting because I think you amass a set of knowledge that you feel like you know. 
I was telling you before we started recording hmm. that um, the last episode of the Knowledge Project I was listening to, <laughs> Shane is uh, uh, talking to this gentleman who's who's sharing this notion that like as companies know more and more, then they start to feel like they've solved more and more of the problem, and then the the hmm. room for innovation becomes less and less, uh, and it's just kind of a tendency that happens. Yeah. And then you tend to that company will tend to buy acquire a company because that company is doing innovation, but then they apply their processes, and then that company gets absorbed, and then the cycle begins again. Um, huh. so it's an interesting thing I think what you're saying that that when we start to move into algorithmic solutions to things um, the, the, I think that we've like sometimes yes it's like you're saying that there's an there's like a recipe to be followed but even when there's a recipe to be followed that recipe is dependent upon certain external factors right the most obvious example is like when you bake it's dependent on what altitude you're at like otherwise the recipe can be dramatically different uh, and huh. I think people forget just that, that once you have an algorithmic solution, it's dependent upon external factors as well. And if those external factors change, yeah. then you have to look at it again as needing a heuristic sort of a heuristic problem, needing a different kind of solution. Yeah. I also think that like certain problems, um, if you break them down into smaller pieces, sure, you can find algorithmic parts to it, but it's a folly to think that it ever becomes an algorithmic problem. Just because we've broken it down into smaller and more manageable pieces doesn't mean that the, like, the complicatedness of the problem has changed. Yeah. So, back to the idea of, like, I don't understand spaces in that fashion. Like, I don't think that I have even the markers around which I could start building heuristics. But you relate to spaces very differently. So, like, let's go to that question. When you enter a space, how do you think about it? How do you feel about it? Um, like, what are the spaces that you generally gravitate towards? What do you not? What thoughts you easily evaluate and what you don't? Lately, um, I just moved from uh, Bangalore to New York. And, you know, we, there's a lot of uh, transport involved in that, right? So a lot of spending time in, in airports and huh. like kind of lobbies and receptions. Um, we've also been like hanging out with some of our friends. And, and, you know, that tends to be in restaurants. And so I would say that those spaces like tend to be places where you're trying to move people into certain activities and that will usually be what i first kind of notice about a space is like how where are you where are you being told to move to how is it how how what is the movement within the space right like how are people expected to move through the space huh. and um how huh. clear and successful is that right and i think depending on the space it can mean different things like you know how easy is it to find your way to someone's apartment uh how can you find the bathroom without asking anyone? Um, do you know where to go just kind of instinctively uh, or often just examples of a space yeah. that's well designed where they've given you uh, markers that you're not having to consciously think about. Um, for example, in uh, the MoMA right now where I was uh, earlier this week, they've clearly added a sort of security check a little bit ahead of where you used to walk in. So it's just really interesting because what it's done is it's changed the way people enter into the building because now uh, you go through these kind of detector thingies and then if the detector goes off, then only do they look at your bag. Otherwise, you can just like walk straight in. So they're, they're, I think this, the purpose of it is they're having to look at less people's bags, but the, the net result is everyone is walking through these two detectors. And this is a, an entrance that has maybe 10 doors across of which they've kept two doors for exiting. So 
everyone's coming in through these doors, but then being funneled in through these two detectors. And then because of that, you're they're cutting off to the left. There's a section for overflow ticketing so people can buy their own tickets on these machines. And everyone is instead going straight and up the stairs and then uh, to join the line. And so there's a queue to get tickets and there's about like 15 empty electric electronic machines where you could be getting your tickets. And so that was just interesting to me, right? Because I was like, oh, I understand how this could have happened and how this wouldn't have happened in the design. But now because of this like a kind of additive uh, component, now you've changed the flow of, of people through the building. See, that is the kind of thing that I find, like that is the kind of thing that scares me when I think about making a space better. Why? Because it's such a complex thing. So, for example, um, I went to the Kochi Biennale this weekend and they had a bunch of different venues. I think I went to like some six or seven different venues. Um, and it was very interesting how different... So, for example, they had um, like they had these main venues and they had some satellite okay. venues. Um which were like not as high fi, I guess. Um, and the interesting thing was because it was really hot and the satellites venue, satellite venues did not have the kind of money, there wasn't air conditioning in those. Like there wasn't even a single room which would have air conditioning. It wasn't like any of the venues fully air conditioned, but there were some rooms which had air conditioning. And I just found myself feeling way more harshly critical of the artwork. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, because I was just like, oh, this is too hot. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I don't want to be here. And so I was just less open to the art in those places. There were some artworks which were probably not as deep or as meaningful, but because it was cooler there, I just felt nicer and I'm aware of this bias. Like I'm, as I am doing this, I'm still aware, oh my God, I'm not liking this because I'm feeling hot right now. And this is not aesthetic. This is just very purely functional. But I'm sure when they were designing, and of course they have designed it for across months, air conditioning was probably not needed till last month. But now that it's getting so hot, my brain was just could not think beyond that. And like, that's such a small thing. But I know that when you're a curator, you're probably not thinking about that. You are thinking about the space in many ways, but probably not thinking how are people going to be moving between these spaces? Is it going to be hot? Is it going to be windy? What happens when somebody's coming here in the evening, in the morning? Are they hungry? Have they eaten? Right? Like, how far is this thing? Like, you're probably not thinking about all of those things. But when you're designing a, like, when you're a person experiencing the space, you feel all of those things. I don't know. I would say that it is possible to think about those things, right? Like in, in the MoMA again, like the first thing you see when you enter is there's a cafe and then there's a this space to sit down. <laughs> so like immediately, right, you know, and then there's also a bathroom, right? So immediately, you know, once you're inside, like where the things you might need immediately are, right? Like you can get some sustenance, you can take a little rest. And like the first exhibit is actually there's there's a projection uh, in this whole like atrium area which has an indoor and outdoor component so like it's a really lovely space so you can even feel like you're you're experiencing some art you're like taking a little rest and then you kind of can gather yourself to move forward i don't know i think it's just a question of really thinking about behavior right like 
it's knowing like especially MoMA like they know it's so many foreign tourists they have a bunch of museums they want to see in the day it's not their first rodeo you know I think I remember there was like it was in our lifetimes they moved into that space like it was with great fanfare I can't quite remember when huh. how do you think about it what do you mean okay I'll give a side example but recently I was talking to someone who was telling me oh I just can't make art I don't have the artistic thing like I just don't have there's something that artists need that I don't have and she was referring to like a skill of the hand and I asked her can you write with your hand like can you handwrite and she was like of course I can and I was like then you have all the spine motor control that is needed what you probably don't know is how to see and when you learn how to see you learn how to draw um, so I feel like that's a bit of a no that is true for all art forms when you learn how to observe you learn how to write way better when you learn how to listen to things properly you get better at music especially when you're thinking about constructing things from scratch you can copy things sure you can do rote learning and copy things but at least in my experience all art forms require observation like doing good quality input is a reliable way of having good quality output it's just like you know what questions to ask you know where to look you know how to think about it and which is i am asking how do you think about spaces that's interesting i will answer your question but i was thinking about as a counterpoint while you were talking that like i learning about convergence and and like parallel like how parallel lines behave was such like an important thing for me when i learned uh, how to draw but now i'm thinking about it really it's kind of a shortcut to make you observe those things right because once you have that construct oh. in your mind then of course you'll look and say oh i know you know these windows are the same size but the because i'm standing at different relationship to all three of them in fact right they all look like they're going um like the lines of the windows are converging to a single place the dot um yeah yeah interesting hmm. so i guess i would say yeah so the first frame i already kind of gave you right which is like how you would uh move about the space and i think how the space is functional for its purposes i think something we talked about on a previous episode was i was sharing this example of this coffee shop um that i like to go to um and how it uh is not really conducive for for working but it is very conducive for taking meetings and for like quiet contemplation and i think we were talking about huh. how like you know even if they added uh power adapters that would have changed the feel of it right so i think something i'll also notice is what is the feel of 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 the experience right and does does the functional choices make match the feel right so if it feels like this is a place for lounging does the does the furniture feel like it is actually for lounging um i think i'm huh. using feel in two different ways there so one is like kind of the the sense of it but then the other is like how it actually behaves when you touch it and interact with it so you know does the furniture actually behave in a comfortable loungy way when you interact with it did you have a thought yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that it like made me think about this concept in game design called ludo narrative resonance okay. um or dissonance um So Ludo is the play and narrative is the story right and if you are playing a game where okay so have you played or seen the last of us um i've seen we've been Gaurav and i have been watching it right so um 
when you're playing the game you can tell from the show the relationship between Ellie and Joel is the central yeah. thing in the entire show right um and like both of those characters and how they evolve with that relationship now um when you play the game almost always the focus is on the relationship they are always like whether you play as play as Ellie or whether you play as Joel you are always focused on the other person like the play is always like whether Ellie is trying to protect like it's really really centered like they're helping each other out here always focused on it even in the moments when the relationship is not doing well the gameplay tells you that like ellie quote unquote wouldn't listen to you in certain parts when she's feeling depressed it's just so amazing because you just feel that oh i feel something is wrong and like there the play and the story is sort of gelling well together interesting right because there is a lot of ludo narrative resonance so you feel what you are playing on the other hand there is like witcher 3 amazing game one of the best ever made i love it the central um like theme line is that you're trying to find your daughter and then you would be doing all of these side quests of helping a woman find her goats or like you know giving someone some herbs or some like random things like that and if you are like you know witcher does not do it poorly so like you are always immersed because the world is pretty immersive But if you were just to think about that larger thing, if my child was missing, would I be doing random things for other people? Like, would I be doing chores for <laughs> random strangers that I've never met before? No, right? And that's like ludo narrative dissonance. And the word gets a lot of hate because, like, a lot of crit- critics use it in wrong so, ways. But um, you can do it in like smaller ways also. Like, is the play and the layer on top of it are they pushing me into different directions? because if they are pushing you into different directions it builds tension and if they are bringing you together towards the same goal it like improves the pace makes the thing feel a lot more seamless and when you were talking about spaces and like how the functional and the feel part of it and how they interact with each other it like sort of made me think oh this is kind of like it, you know like this is kind of like that concept where it's like even if i see this is a space for you to sit if there is a lot of through fare in that space and a lot of people are coming and going you're probably not going to feel comfortable sitting in that space no i think that makes a lot of sense i was thinking about for a second whether like how that is true across other things right like i think something we've talked about in the podcast before is how it's true across different levels of the experience that a company has with its customers right so what do you have when when you have expectations of how a company will behave and you learn more about that company and it behaves in the way you expect you know that is part of how people move down that path of loyalty but when when there is that kind of that dissidence when you have this expectation that is not met then that that often can lead to a, you know something that erodes uh, the kind of trust that is built between the brand and the and the, the person experiencing um Like I wonder if there's something about physical spaces that does not let it to be like clearly mapped into other things because that's how generally I build heuristics into areas that I don't understand. For example, hmm. when I first started writing and it's not very like old that I started writing. Um like in 2020 I started writing a little bit. Um and very quickly my brain found oh this is similar to this part of design and this is similar to that part of design and this is similar to that part of design 
and very quickly it became like I had a rough skeletal framework and then I could figure out okay these are the things which are very different about writing which are not so about art so for example a very rough artwork can communicate a lot you can't do the same thing with writing like the requirement of polish is just slightly higher because there isn't other sort of relationships beyond the chronological how you are reading the words one after the yeah. other for, to distract you right um like abstract writing is a lot more cognitively draining while abstract art can be very emotionally evocative and like those small things my brain was able to pick up but broadly there is this structure and you can do like you know xyz things like that skeleton and sphere um and now i'm just like i think because i'm trying to problem solve it and because i know that there is not going to be a singular thing i'm just thinking about how do i map it for the lack of a better term can i map it into something that i know so the answer i would give you it goes back to this thing we talked about previously right but how we have different uh feelings about making art and how i feel like things reach a point where it feels right and then you were saying that that hmm. you reach a point where you're like i'm going to stop working on this right isn't that how you said it it was uh you had said something about expression and i had said about art is never complete but abandoned mm, that was it so i think i feel similarly about spaces right that it's a little hard for me to explain why like what the components would be because there's a certain point where it just starts to feel right um when i had my studio in new york uh in 2014 to 2015 i really went through a lot of iterations uh, of the space and, and it was like kind of a joke with all my friends that like they would come over and it would be like in a different because it was, it was a studio right so it was kind of crazy that I'd find so many different layouts um, but I would manage to huh. and then it reached a point I think after about four or five months where I was happy and then I kept it like that for the rest of, of the time um, and I wouldn't say necessarily that it was any particular component didn't move in that final layout, right? Like, I think actually I ended up moving the bed and kind of the dining table, which were the two biggest pieces of the space, quite significantly in that final layout. So it wasn't like I kind of iterated my way, you know, at least visually iterated my way uh, into where, where it made me happy. Um, yeah. But it was this kind of understanding of, I think, what I like to use the space for. Right. And so I realized having a place I could sit and read was really important that I wasn't going that didn't really care that much about the table being like a huge part of it. Um, so I could kind of put it in this other place um, that I like to rely on my bed. This is so frustrating. Well, I... <laughs> because like, so I understand this problem enough to know that I can't iterate my way to it. But I don't understand it enough to get to it. See, like, you just know how to make big changes and where to make big changes. Like, when I'm making games, I know where to make big changes. What should I significantly change for the feel of the place to alter? Or what should I significantly change for the experience to be different? When I'm making products, I know that, like, like I know what is a small change and what is a big change. And what seems like a small input and what seems like a small output, like what will come out to be a small output. I understand that. And like with spaces, I just, like that mental map is just absent, almost. Oh, well, I mean, 
Okay, maybe I'll tell you some of the things that I feel like are basics, but like, you know, obviously the placement of the furniture, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but one of the big components is the placement of the furniture and also like what you see, right? So like, especially when I think when you enter into a room, uh, your sight lines will kind of guide you on what you feel like the room is for. Um, this is, I think, maybe a slightly controversial thing that I feel. I'm not sure if it's like a well-accepted fact, right? But like, if you see like a bed when you first walk into a room, you're gonna feel like it's a bedroom. Or like, if you see a table, you're going to, you know, feel a certain way. Um, especially if it's like a formal dining table, right? You might not feel like that's the right place for you to hang out in that room, so you might move to a different, a different space. Um, so I would think about one of the things I think about is that, right? So what are the sight lines from like the different places where people hang out in the room um, or like also the entrance and the exits of that room? And then also where are your placements of big huh. furnitures? Um, because and how do those orient with each other? So how would you interact huh. in different spaces? And then thinking about like, OK, you know, if there were two people here, where how would they behave? Depending, like if there were three people, where would they behave? If there were four people and then going to whatever you feel like the reasonable sort of max is uh, for that space. Huh. And as I think I was mentioning earlier on, you know, one of the things that you want to think about is what are the functions in that space going to be? Um, so in our case, we have so like frequent functions, but then also like more occasional functions like Gora or I might like roll, uh, foam roll or we might, um, you know, use some sort of like yoga mat or something. So that's something where you need to be able to like create the space, but it doesn't have to be available all the time. But if you have to move like a heavy piece of furniture, that's kind of a pain in the ass. If you can move a light piece of furniture or something easily movable, that's much easier to deal with if it's something that you might be doing on like a weekly basis. But I do think a big thing, though, is it was whatever you see you're going to do. And there's a lot of interesting research that proves this. You know, people will eat the sugary thing when it's at their sight line and they'll drink whatever is at their sight line. So I think thinking about that is a really big thing. It's like what is visible to you? Um, and I think as someone who does tend to forget stuff, like I know that I have to keep things that I need to remember in a place that they're visible to me. So I'll have a space usually, you know, that I'll see on my way out that I'll have things that I need to remember. Like my wallet is sitting right by the door. <laughs> um, and that's a learned habit, but that's also just helpful for everyone. I like that. That's actually really helpful. Yeah, it wasn't basic. <laughs> I hadn't thought about where are people looking at. Yeah. Like, I really hadn't. And it's, like, now that you, once you said it, it feels really obvious. Like, of course, you should be thinking about it. Um, Huh. Okay. Are there other things that you would say are like, you know, this is very basic and obvious? I think something you and I have talked about before is that moods can be created by the levels of light. And I think it's similar to what you were just saying with, like, sight lines. But depending on how well things are lit, certain areas are going to feel inviting or less inviting. Yeah. Like, you're not going to go into a dark space, generally, right? So if some spaces are lit and some spaces are dark, that's going to encourage people to sit in the lit, in the lit spaces. And it's just an interesting way you can start to think about how you control the traffic flow or control where people are going at different times of the day. And I mean, at that point, control from like a space design point of view, right? Like you've you've thought about, oh, this is where we want to sit for the evening. Well, how am I going to encourage people to do that and to know that, especially when they might have a habit of doing something else? And that's a really interesting thing you have to think about is because once people are used to a certain space or used to a certain way of behaving, they have habits. And if you're trying to encourage them to do something different, you're going to have to use all of the resources at your disposal. And some of them can mean literally like, you know, putting it more dark at the dining table and lighting up your your sitting area if that's what you want people to do after dinner. It 
turn off the lights over the table and turn on more lights over there, and people will naturally start to migrate over there. Oh, that is very smart. Okay, so I'm not sure if like this fits or doesn't fit, but I've always painted walls in whatever space I've lived okay. in. Like, um, since my college time, like, um, we used to have a corridor and I had painted this like um, gradient of bubbles in front of like in front of my room. And I have painted every house that I've lived in since then. Like even if it is something very small, I've done something there. And I wonder if it is like, because I'm trying to convey some amount of that mood to myself. Like in a weird way, if you have very bright and vibrant colors, regardless of the amount of light, there's always a certain amount of energy in the space because of the colors. Like you can keep it, like unless it is completely dark, if there is some light, it's always going to be more vibrant hmm. than if there was nothing there, right? And I wonder if like, you know, I've always done that because I like higher energy spaces. Like one of the artworks that I really liked in Kochi Biennale was this mega colorful floor. And like it was just empty giant room and some uh, like the artist had uh, taken multiple colored tapes and they had sort of gone around and made this like very beautiful pattern yeah. of like concentric, uh, so you can't call them circles, but concentric loops and had done vinyl sort of flooring on top of like just sort of put vinyl on top of that. And like I loved that space precisely because it was so colorful and bright. And I wonder if like, like now I'm just thinking about, okay, does that attract me to a certain space or like, you know, because I am willing to put in that effort also. Like I said, initially, I generally don't think it's worth the effort. But like here, I'm like, okay, it takes effort, but I'm willing to put in this effort. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea because I think there can be certain singular pieces or certain singular things that give a space a feel. And maybe that's what you're doing because, huh. you know, you're not having to rely on so many small things because you're doing one big thing, that especially because you have attachment to it and the people that you live with have attachment to it because they've seen you building it. And so there's both the, the final outcome and the, the understanding of the journey that every time you, you engage with that, every time you see that thing, it's going to bring to mind all of those those feelings of, you know, attachment and, and ownership and... Uh, Interesting. I wouldn't have... Yeah. I wouldn't have thought of it as like attachment because like I've made it in every space that I've been in and I just leave it right like somebody paints over it and I remember making one of the artworks in one of my friends houses and they were so upset when they were leaving the house because they were like no you made this thing it was so pretty and I'm and I was like yeah but wall art is meant to like you know it is ephemeral I don't think I feel attachment as such but like just the mood idea feels interesting to me. Like the mood part really resonates there. Yeah, and I guess maybe attachment was a strange word, but it's it's making the space feel a certain way. And I think that doing huh. that is what I was calling attachment, right? Huh. Like is is you're you're not just huh. putting your bed and you know a desk and like kind of not doing anything else. You're like even though you're not maybe creating a mood with the layout of your furniture or, you know, the, the colors of your, your color scheme or something, you're doing something else that then creates a feeling. Um, and 
that huh. you're building something with, in conjunction with the space, I guess is how I was saying attachment. Huh. Okay. Like, I feel like even though these are like, you know, maybe two or three main components, it almost, to me, feels like I have somewhat enough to start building the skeletal framework for thinking about spaces. I wonder if like, you know, hmm, I feel like I should just go and experiment a little bit with the spaces that I'm a part of, um, whether it is my own space or like with other people's spaces. Huh? I should experiment <laughs> with other people's spaces also. And then maybe I can like, we can in future maybe sometime discuss this or not, but I really like how we have talked about and named our podcast Thinking on Thinking, but I think this is the first time we have actively done the thinking <laughs> on thinking. Yeah. And not in a cognitive way. I guess like we've always done it in a cognitive way, but this feels much more actioned. I wonder how the listeners would feel about it, but yeah. No, I know what you mean. I think um, I think like sometimes we do this with each other, which is like point out where we are, seem to be having a cognitive bias, but I don't think we've really done it on the podcast before. Um, so I think, yeah, it was it was a good time. Hmm. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thinking on Thinking. Our theme music is by Steve Gomes. If you found any of the topics we talked about interesting this week, we'd invite you to get in touch with us. We'd love to invite you on the podcast or just have a conversation about how these topics apply in your business and in the decisions and problems that you're struggling with. You can get in touch with us on our website, joyas.studio, or by reaching out to Divya or me, Karan, directly.